You're now listening to episode 100 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Castelli joined here today with Tom and Andrew Gustafson of Atlas 1031 Exchange, a company that provides qualified intermediary services to accommodate or facilitate simple and complex 1031 exchanges. In today's episode, we discuss the various aspects of reverse 1031 exchanges, a strategy that allows you to acquire a replacement property prior to selling the property you wish to exchange, Improvement Exchanges, another 1031 exchange strategy, and the impact COVID-19 has on 1031 exchange deadlines. Tom, Andy, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a brief overview of your backgrounds and how you got involved in the 1031 exchange space? Sure. Well, first and foremost, Brandon Thomas, thank you so much for having us. We're really honored to be here. And um, my name is Tom Gustafson. I'm a qualified intermediary with Atlas 1031 Exchange. And with me, I have Andy Gustafson. Uh, you want to say, hey, Andy? Hi. Hello, Tom. Hello, Brandon. Hello, Thomas. Andy founded Atlas 1031 Exchange 17 years ago. Uh, and he and I have been working together the last few years uh, in the space. We're based out of Florida. I'm in Central Florida, and Andy is in, uh, in Naples. And uh, we fully focus on 1031 exchanges. It's uh, it's our sole focus and uh, what we do day in, day out. Nice, nice. And I know there's a lot of different types of 1031 exchanges, and I'm sure our audience has heard of a 1031 exchanges before, but for anybody who's listening who may not be familiar or just needs a refresher, would you be able to just give us a quick overview of what a traditional 1031 exchange is? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, I'd also like to refer them to one of your earliest podcasts where you had Bill Exeter on. Uh, Bill is a legend, and uh, that's a great listen. So if anybody is really interested in this, I'd encourage them to kind of go back to the old days of uh, the podcast and listen to one of those first um, episodes. But essentially, Section 1031 is an internal revenue code section that allows for the deferral of capital gains for both state and federal, as well as depreciation recapture uh, for the sale of properties that are held for trade, business, or investment purposes. Uh, after the Tax Cuts and Job Acts of 2018, uh, now it only applies to real property. So we'll be focusing on real property as it pertains to uh, different types of exchanges. Uh, in a forward exchange, which is really ubiquitous and very common, you know, essentially, for those of you that don't know, it, it allows the, what we call the exchanger or the taxpayer to sell a property held for trade, business, or investment, and then to reinvest those proceeds and debt into replacement property, therefore deferring their tax obligation if done correctly and fully. The forward exchange is, again, like I mentioned, very common and pretty straightforward, pretty simple. And again, Bill did a great job of explaining all the basics. If anyone has any thoughts about that, they should definitely dive into that podcast that you did with him. Uh, But what we're going to talk about today is something called reverse exchanges. And a reverse exchange is a different type of tool for uh, investors, for taxpayers, etc., that are potentially looking to approach uh, the 1031 space in in a different angle. And many times we'll get calls and someone will say, hey, I closed two weeks ago. I need to do a reverse exchange. And we're like, well, that's not the way a reverse exchange works. It doesn't mean you can go back. A reverse exchange essentially allows you to acquire replacement property first. Uh, 
So in a forward exchange, the relinquished property or the property sold by the exchanger is sold first. And then within 180 calendar days, a replacement property is acquired. In doing so, you successfully complete the IRS regulations and uh, it allows you to uh, gain access to that deferral. And in the reverse exchange, there are actually a lot of similarities. However, there are some very key differences. And that's what we're going to talk about today in regards to just some of the basics, um, some of those differences, and some of those similarities. So just for any of those tax nerds out there, this comes from Revenue Procedure 2000-37 on the IRS code, and it was further modified in 2004 in RevPROC 2004-51. If you really want some good bathroom reading, that's a great place to go. But essentially, to start with why, a reverse exchange is a powerful tool because it allows the exchanger to acquire the replacement property first. Uh, For any individuals that have completed a forward exchange, they'll understand that the 45-day ID window goes very quickly. And though it seems like quite a bit of time, it's not. And so the reverse exchange allows the exchanger to take their time to identify the ideal replacement property, acquire that property first, and then have 180 calendar days to sell one or multiple relinquished properties. So as you can see, this type of tool allows you to be much more focused on the replacement property first rather than focused on trying to find replacement properties with the clock ticking. So a couple key similarities uh, in a forward exchange, um, the same taxpayer who sells must be the same taxpayer who acquires. Uh, That's the same in a reverse exchange. Uh, In order to successfully execute a reverse exchange, the relinquished property must be sold and conveyed within 180 calendar days of the acquisition of the replacement. And as mentioned, if you have multiple relinquished properties you're considering selling, you still have 45 days to identify what those properties are. And in our experience, typically it's one property acquired, one property sold, so the 45-day ID doesn't come in too much. Um, you can't utilize a disqualified party as a QI or something called an exchange accommodation title holder, which I'll explain in a moment. Uh, But it's the same type of non-familial ascending-descending relation as you would see in a forward exchange. And in terms of the replacement property, it must still be of equal or greater value. So you have to reinvest the full exchange proceeds and debt, i.e. the net sales price, into the replacement property. And then finally, this property can't also be your primary residence or your vacation home or a place where you spend the summer. All of those standard forward exchange rules still apply. So the question is, well, where does this begin to differ? And um, Revenue Procedure 2000-37 really helps to outline the fact that the IRS does not allow the exchanger to hold both properties simultaneously. And what that means is an exchange accommodation title holder, or what we call an EAT, must take title, or the the verb we use is parking, must park either the replacement or the relinquished property so that the exchanger doesn't simultaneously hold those properties. So in a reverse exchange, that is one of the, you know, the first considerations in terms of the conversation. You know, first you qualify the, the transaction to make sure that it in fact meets IRS criteria. But secondly, then you have to really get into, well, which property do we park? You know, which again is, is the verb for which property is held by the exchange accommodation title holder. What do the timing requirements look like here? I mean, how far in advance can I purchase that replacement property before I have to relinquish the current property? Sure. Yeah. So it'd be 180 calendar days. 
Okay. So, yeah. and, and do I need to indicate somehow that I want to run with a reverse 1031 before I purchase that replacement property? Absolutely. Yes. And in a forward exchange on the replacement side, you do need to indicate that it's going to be a 1031 typically done through the PSA In a reverse exchange that still holds. So ahead of time, and as part of the contract, the replacement property contract must be assignable and must allow for an each to potentially take title. So if you're really getting kind of down to, to step number one, if you're going to you know, make a, uh, an offer, that contract must have that language involved. So some of the benefits here are obviously that it's super flexible, right? I can, I can go forward, I can go backwards, uh, which is great. When should I be looping in you guys? If I'm going to do a reverse 1031 I identify this property that I want to pick up. I'm pretty sure that I want to sell this other property in my portfolio at some later point within 180 days. Right. When do I contact you guys to start this process? Yeah, I would say typically we found that the best practice is as early as possible. As soon as you determine the idea that you've heard of this reverse 1031 and that you're, you would like, you're curious, you want to move forward, it doesn't cost you anything to pick up the phone and call a QI who accommodates these. Firstly, just to make sure what you're selling and what you're acquiring actually meet the IRS criteria. Um, it's hard to give like an exact date, <laughs> but I'll tell you, people will sometimes call us and say, Hey, I'm closing tomorrow. Can I do a reverse exchange? <laughs> And I assure you that's not an ideal situation. So for any of your listeners out there, as soon as you hear about this and it really piques your interest, call the QI, call us, and we can talk you through how it works. Uh, second call should be to someone like you all or a CPA to confirm uh, that the exchange is in fact in their best interest because we don't do that, right? We would never tell someone they should or shouldn't uh, being that we're not CPAs. So we would say, speak to your tax advisor to confirm that it is in fact your best interest. But that's typically call number two. And then we kind of go from there. To answer your question directly, the more time, the better. So two additional questions then. You know, obviously this sounds great, very flexible. There's got to be some downsides. So talk to me about some downsides. My second question is, where do clients most often mess up when they're running a reverse 1031 exchange? So what are the downsides and where do clients most often mess up? Yeah, I'll handle the downsides. And Andy, maybe you can share maybe some of your experience on where you've seen these go awry. Um, I'd say that high-level cons in regards to reverse are number one, they're much more expensive. So, you know, when we're talking about a forward exchange, generally speaking, let's say that you can do one for $600 to $1,200 a forward exchange, right? Depending where you are in the country, the complexity, et cetera. A reverse exchange is going to, I mean, honestly, bargain bin 4000 up to 9000 They're exponentially more expensive, much more complex, a lot more moving parts, and more knowledge is needed on the QI side. So number one, big downside, the cost. You know, individuals don't love <laughs> when these are so expensive. However, the deferral, in, in reflection of what the deferral could be, many times exchanges will say, gosh, this is a deal. I should do this to be able to acquire the replacement property in advance. Uh, number two downside, because we have to get involved with more outside services, things can go sideways. <laughs> uh, in a forward exchange, the QI is not interfacing with the insurance underwriter. Uh, they are inter interfacing with the lender, um, but not intimately, really just to provide some supporting documents typically. But in a reverse exchange, if the QI is parking a, a property with a, a note, that could be complicated if the underwriter in the insurance uh, is not happy about adding the, the EAT or that sole purpose entity onto the policy for the exchanger. That can get 
uh, squirrely. So there's just, there's a lot to be done in advance to make sure that there's not going to be any hiccups, you know, three days before closing that could jeopardize the closing. Uh, Andy, what, what would you say in terms of um, where clients go wrong in reverse exchanges? Well, I, I'd like to address uh, Brandon's first question as well, and that's on uh, what's the risk. And the first risk is that you could potentially still own two properties at the end of the cycle because your relinquished property doesn't sell. So that's one the major risk is that you could have actually two properties you still own, and, and you're paying us and our fee for us to do a typical reverse exchange is say fifty five thousand one twenty five, and we've increased that number in a hundred dollars in seventeen years. So I'd say that's one of the risk. Two is another another issue is that uh, can, this can go sideways is that local taxes. How does a local tax authority assess or or trigger taxes whenever you convey title or you change title? Uh, North Carolina, in fact, the state does not recognize the role of the EAT in an exchange, so they they charge a double dock stamp tax, meaning documentary stamp tax. Florida happens to be a very favorable state in that Florida Department of Revenue recognizes the role through two TAAs of the EAT, so there's no they don't charge a double dock stamp tax. Number three, uh, we can go sideways, is that Tom spoke of the same taxpayer requirement. Uh, where the taxpayer that sells is a taxpayer that buys. Well, that's very important that we cover that issue up front because it could be a, a husband owning the property that they want to sell, but they want to buy as husband-wife. It could be a, uh, a multi-member LLC that with one EIN and they want to buy the replacement property with another uh, LLC with an EIN. So again, we have to follow a, a really a, a segment of rules and apply this patchwork of rules to the questions, and we do this on the fly by asking questions that help us understand what are the gotchas? Uh, will the lender, is the lender going to be involved? Will there be, is there a mortgage on the replacement property? Which property are we in a park? Uh, typically, we like to park that relinquished property because it allows the taxpayer to buy the replacement property just as normal. And we don't have to mess with the, uh, or, or get concerned about the underwriter. And it's not so much the, uh, the, the, the lender, it's primarily the, the underwriter, that they just don't want to participate if we have to park the replacement property as in an improvement exchange, because in an improvement exchange, we need to be on title to the property being improved as they eat uh, so that we can convey the property with improvements to the taxpayer. So in recap, I would say the, the risks are, can we actually sell that second property, the relinquished property that's being that's out there within 180 calendar days? We don't control that. And then another one is what's the local county tax authority say on transactions? Is there a lender involved uh, if we have to park the replacement property? And what are, who are the taxpayers on the property that's being sold? And what's the intent and how they want to hold the, uh, for the title holder of the replacement? Got it. Got it. So it seems like there's a lot going on with these uh, reversed exchanges that people need to be aware about. And they should definitely be contacting a qualified intermediary like yourself before, you know, as soon as they have the idea to go ahead and move forward with this so that everything can be considered and mitigated wherever possible. So I know that there's another type of exchange, and I think that Andy had mentioned it. it's an improvement exchange. And this is another exchange that people actually ask us about fairly often, I would say, would you be able to give us an overview of the improvement exchange in a similar way that you did with the reverse exchange? Okay. Improvement exchanges are made up of two things. You have the real property that's being acquired, and then you have improvements. And what are improvements made up of but two things, materials and labor? So that, those, that material and labor doesn't become real property until it's affixed to the ground. 
So it can't be for roof tiles that have been ordered or labor to be applied. So we need to be conveying property of real property with improvements at the time that we need to do at least by the 180th calendar day. So those improvements, we need to have the eat park or take title to the replacement property. Uh, then my questions would be, do we have a lender involved? Some will say yes. Then I'll say, does the lender, have you spoken with the lender about your intent to do a reverse exchange? And they may say, well, we really haven't. And that to me is a red flag. So then I'll say, well, I, here's what we need to do to make sure that they're aware and they're on board because it could pull the plug on this reverse exchange. Or it could cause angst because that lender, we may have to go out shopping for another lender. Uh, that's the taxpayer would have to go out and find another lender. Because some, again, as I noted before, some underwriters don't want to participate in reverse exchanges when the EAT or an LLC is on title to that replacement property. Because I have done many with the lenders who have said that they will do these, but they want to have the EAT on the mortgage, signing on the mortgage. And I've said, I will do that as long as we show that the EAT, it's non-recourse to the EAT because the guarantor of the note is the taxpayer. I'm only, we're only on the note, only on the, the title for 180 calendar days. And we can only do certain things that are as, as specified in the Qualified Exchange Accommodation Agreement. So to run this gamut, we need to have the participation of that lender. And if the lender isn't aware, and it's at the last second they're made aware, We've got an issue, potential issue, because the lender may pull the plug and say, we can't close. Then you have all the angst of all the emotions that go into this to say, all right, we have to find another lender that participates, or you just can't do a reverse exchange because the lender prevents it. Yeah. Can you do an improvement both forward and reverse? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah. So we have, we, we, it's, just, it's just different cycles, different uh, how you uh, interchange the pieces, but we could actually bind the replacement property, which could be land that is to be developed. And then when you do that, you have soft costs that are involved with architectural drawings, permits, zoning, professional fees that can chew up, say, three months of your time frame of 180. So we want to get done, have that as much done as possible up front so we don't chew into our 180 calendar days to do the work. So you can buy the property first. You could actually do a forward exchange where you're selling a property then you're buying into the replacement property, and then you have a second property that you want to sell, which gives you an additional 180 calendar days post that closing on the replacement property. So now we've, we've got a forward reverse forward. We can do a, um, a deferred improvement exchange, which is where, again, where we're selling first, and then we're buying the land, and then we're doing completing improvements on there. But the mechanisms in place are that once the, the taxpayer receives the invoice from the contractor, if we're holding exchange funds, we'll have them uh, sign off on a disbursement authorization that allows us now to pay the contractor so we can pay the, from the exchange proceeds those soft costs and the contractor invoices as they come in. But we're careful to say, uh, to tell our taxpayers, you really need to be careful that we're not, we're paying for work that's been completed. And especially at the end, that we don't want to be paying just to exhaust the exchange proceeds. We need to make sure that that work is work that's already been completed. And, and just to jump in there, um, one of the key considerations, as Andy's expressing, of the improvement exchange that that we have a lot of conversations around the improvement exchanges, and they seem very romantic up front. But once you realize, okay, my 180 days in a forward improvement exchange begins when I sell my relinquished, 
And then let's say I buy my replacement lot on day 90, right? And then now you have, you know, 55, what's that? 55 more days, excuse me, not 55, but you have until the 180 day period to, to utilize those exchange proceeds towards that property. And if there's exchange proceeds held over on day 179, as Andy was saying, you can't buy the hardwood floors and just leave them on the job site. They have to be applied to the property via labor. So any exchange proceeds held over on day 180 that aren't applied to become taxable. But, but theoretically, like the development could still take a much longer time. You Absolutely. just have to use. Correct. Okay. okay. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. And, and many times you'll have work that will continue. You may have work that the only, as long as we, if we sell a relinquished property at the end of the intent, and we'll ask these questions, what do you think this sales price of your relinquished property is? It's 300,000. What's the purchase price of the lot? It's 200,000. Um, what do you project is the outcome of the entire project? It's a million so as long as we can buy that replacement property for three hundred thousand, and then we get in the uh, so we're already above and and we complete our exchange say at five hundred thousand, then I can convey the uh, deeded interest uh, to the taxpayer at that point, and then work can continue, which is different from working with a contractor or or a builder who must have a certificate of occupancy many times to be able to give that uh, deed, which prevents them from closing. So the exchange completes when uh, we have a deeded interest conveyed. Hmm. Interesting. So what is the cost of an improvement exchange? Yeah, it's a straightforward 5125 So and in that 5125 we've got 125 goes to Florida Department of, of uh, uh, Corporations, uh, Division of uh, Corporations. That's 125 to create the EAT. That's our cost. That's the cost on fundbiz.org. We have 850 for the Ford exchange that happens when we actually sell that replacement property, the relinquished property, and we have 4150 is our reverse charge. Got it. So you put those all together, and we've got 5125. Sorry, and that's the did I say reverse or improvement? Is that the improvement? It's the price for both, more or less. Oh, and, and so you mentioned that you could double up, though, right? So I could do a reverse improvement exchange. Absolutely. What is the cost of that? It's the same. Oh, interesting. Okay. So we're right. not so if I'm going to do a reverse exchange, I might as well just do a reverse improvement exchange. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and typically my, my point is, is to ask them, well, what's the value of your improvements? And they say, well, it's probably 30,000. We're just going to do some improvements. And I go, I'll say, you know, it's probably best. And especially I had, a, I had a potential client the other day who said they called and they said they were selling a property for 150,000 and they're buying a property for 170,000 and they want to do a reverse, no improvements. And I told them, well, our fee is, you probably won't want to do it because it's just, it doesn't make cost sense. But if, but if we have a bigger numbers, I'll ask if it's 30,000, that that's your uh, scope of improvement. It's probably best just to do it. Just do a forward exchange, pay tax on the balance and make your own improvements because it doesn't make sense to do what we're looking at is a 5,125 and up to say 8,000 if need be on the, on the higher end ones. Okay. So how do real estate investors screw up improvement exchanges? <laughs> That's a great question. I feel like I touched on it a little bit earlier, but it, you know, it, it definitely uh, to, to repeat it. I mean, I think that you, if you go into say a forward improvement exchange where you sell the relinquished property on day one, and then you don't, you're not acquiring the replacement property that you intend to improve until later in the process. Uh, people don't take seriously how long it takes for permitting architectural drawings, et cetera, et cetera that eats away at your time. And then you have less and less time to work with the GCs to actually put labor to materials to get to your 180 day uh, exchange period close. And that goes sideways fast. Hmm. 
So kind of going back to Brandon, your original question about when should we talk to someone about this? I think as soon as you begin to, to kind of toss around the idea in your head, it, it doesn't hurt to have a conversation because this will allow you to potentially begin to line up, as Andy was saying, the architects, the permitting, the et cetera. And even maybe in a best case scenario, let's say you close on day one selling your relinquished property. If you can immediately thereafter acquire your replacement property, mm. it gives you a much extended runway to get started and to have everything lined up gives you the best possible chance to be successful. If you call us the week before <laughs> and you don't really have your ducks in a row and you're closing, your clock is ticking and the IRS is not forgiving in regards to those dates. Mm. I also want to add that yeah, if within a week before closing or a short window, what's the lender saying? Uh, have you spoken with the lender? I mean, you've virtually taken that out of the equation because no one thought about it. What's the tax consequence of conveying title? What's the cost of that? So there are a number of things that could get screwed up very easily, very quickly when you try to reduce your, your time frame to say, okay, I'm ready to go. Call me and I'm ready to go. I need to get this done tomorrow or in a week. So from a timing perspective, I get the sense that it makes a lot of sense to try to do the closings as close together as possible. Precisely. Yes. Can you do them same day? You can. If uh, It's definitely eligible via IRC section 1031. There's no restriction on it. Uh, if you're closing with separate entities, our experience has been, you know, wire windows can get funny. <laughs> so mm. sometimes people are sitting at the table or waiting and that can be uh, just unfortunate. So we recommend 24 hours in between the closings just for the sake of the wire transfer. Uh, but it's certainly not. Yeah, it's a wire window. The wire window closes, say, 3 p.m. on a day. And if you've got a closing that happens later in the afternoon, they can't get the funds out by the wire window cut off. There you go. And then people are waiting the next day. Well, where are the funds? If you have an early morning, same day closing, right. you've lost your, your window. You, you, mm. there's, I mean, we don't control that. It's the title company or closing attorney that does that. Yeah, interesting. So a safety valve for us is just recommending, not requiring, but recommending 24 hours between close, just to okay. make sure that that doesn't happen. That's good um, to know. So yeah, close but, together is good, but too close is not good. So. <laughs> exactly. Same day is not great. And, and Brandon, just also just put a little color commentary on you know with the with the reverses and with the improvement exchanges, you know the time prior is important. On the forwards, the basics. Um, people call us all the time saying, Hey, I'm closing tomorrow. And generally we can do that. So that's, that's not a problem on the forward side, but as Andy was describing reverse and improvement is definitely a, uh, and we also, Andy also handles international exchanges globally, and then, uh, leasehold improvement exchanges, which are even more rare where you actually improve land you already own. Hmm. So those are two other type. those four exchanges, really the more time you have before closing, the better. I'd like to bring up another topic, and that's when we convey title to the taxpayer at the end of the exchange. And so I've spoken of it before, and how is that done? What is the county in Virginia or Baltimore, Maryland, is notorious for charging double dock stamp taxes when there is a a private letter ruling that's been given by one of their attorneys or state attorneys earlier that I bring out to show that closing attorney, we don't have to be paying this double dock stamp charge. Uh, there's another avenue to pursue, and it's called an assignment of membership interests. So in those, if we know in advance that the state that they're, that we're going to be conveying the property in uh, requires a double dock stamp tax, the, the issue is to say, in fact, I'm doing one right now, is, is to say, well, let me convey from the parent of the EATS LLC, 
convey through a membership uh, membership entrance assignment of membership interests to assign the membership interest over to the taxpayer. So it's basically the, the sole member of the EAT LLC um, is assigning the interest over to the taxpayer as the sole member. And now the name doesn't change on in the tax records. We have many people that are happy because of that. One, we've been able to to not have to pay double dock stamp charge because we haven't changed the name on the replacement property that's being conveyed. Uh, two, the title insurance stays with that LLC. Uh, that's when you're buying the, the, the property as that name of the EAT. So that's another way that we do this is to learn, well, what's that's why we, well, we always ask, well, wh- where are the states these properties are located? What state are they a re- the taxpayer a resident of? And then we, we're putting together this uh, through our, our quiver of arrows to understand how we launch those arrows to say, we're going to do an assignment of membership interest because we avoid these taxes. And so that's another gotcha that, that Tom can probably speak of uh, more intimately, having gone through an experience with, with a client where that's just important to ask. And how is that done, but through a membership interest, if, if it's possible. Great. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about legislation, both recent and a couple of years ago. So Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017 changed the rules a little bit for 1031 exchanges. And there's always a lot of questions out there around cost segregation studies, right? If I do a cost segregation study and I identify a lot of personal property, that's great from a tax perspective. I get bonus depreciation and all of that stuff. But can I 1031 exchange all that personal property now too? Sure. Great question. And uh, unfortunately, you can't. As of Jan 1st, 2018, personal property has been removed from the code. And uh, I'd say that, you know, we, Andy and I are very thankful for the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, which is the professional trade organization that's really the, the most prominent in the QI space who really lobbied to keep 1031 intact. Uh, it was it was very possible that all of 1031 was going to go away as of Jan 1, 2018. So um, thankfully, real property was preserved, but all personal property has been removed from the code. So in the past, you know, and Andy has done classic cars or very expensive violins or different things or different, you know, for selling a hotel, uh, there's different personal property that can be rolled into that. But, but because of TCJA, that's actually been, it's been removed. So now it's purely real property. And I guess if you were going to try to get the personal property to be exchanged with it, I think there's a there's a strategy out there that exists where you would do a cost segregation study on the property you're acquiring, and then you would be able to, if I'm explaining it correctly, you would be able to use the losses from the personal property on the newly acquired property to offset pretty much the depreciation recapture on the relinquished property. I'm not familiar with that specifically, but I will tell you where we do uh, uh, kind of come up against it is if the personal property in a building is under 15% of the gross sales price, it's considered incidental and therefore doesn't have to be identified separately in the 45 day ID. So there are, you know, if you think about residential property selling with refrigerators and (laughs) stuff like that, I mean, we're not line iteming and pulling out refrigerators, et cetera, for these exchanges. So there are some, there is some incidental that's allowable, but it's minimal. So, so kind of along those lines, though, if we've already done a cost study and we've identified those refrigerators, is it still incidental from a 1031 exchange perspective or are we toast? That's a great question. Andy, you have any thoughts on that? I'm going to say that it's incidental. So that refrigerator is included in the exchange. And most times on the closing statement, it's just going to say real property. It's not itemized what the personal property is. 
Now, that can get more technical when you've got or more of an issue when you have uh, selling a, a, a ranch where you have a, a primary residence that's being, that's being carved out, and then you have the land that's being uh, uh, sold as a 1031. But back to your question, we're just out of the loop on those personal property side. We just, we can't, I mean, we used to do uh, furniture. We used to, I used to do aircraft, heavy machinery, uh, low boy trucks, cement trucks, uh, cranes. Uh, but it's just, we, but if it's not incidental, we can't touch it. Makes sense. Makes sense. So bottom line is, uh, if you're looking at the personal property, it has to either be incidental less than 15% of the entire sale or you have to look at potentially you're going to have to pay depreciation recapture tax potentially or, or tax in general on that. Right. Or it, it's up to you. To, uh, that's up to uh, us to follow what the intent of the CPA is to say, well, do we need to itemize the personal property so that we have a cost basis or do we, do we bundle it into the real property? So I'd like to say that we don't, we aren't asking all the time, does this sales price include personal property? Is it above 15? Is it over 15%? Uh, because it's typically itemized just as real property. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think there's, there's, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it is. And I think it's an area that we've been trying to get answers on and there is, I think it's just gray, like you're saying. So there is another area that has been changed though, as a result of COVID-19 and that's the extension of 1031 exchanges within certain timeframes. Are you familiar with that? And would you be able to give a little overview of what that means? Sure. Uh, yeah, Thomas. On April 9th, the IRS released IRS Notice 2020-23. And uh, it's something that we in the 1031 space have been waiting on for weeks and months. And uh, not only us, but I mean, many exchangers across the country. And a lot of letters were written and uh, senators were called <laughs> to try and get it into this IRS notice. But essentially, the way it reads in our general understanding is that any 45-day or 180-day periods that come to close between April 9th and July 14th get extended to July 15th. So what that means practically is for a lot of our exchangers, let's say they had a, uh, a 45-day ID ending on April 15th. Well, now they have until July 15th to make their ID. So you can immediately understand how much of a benefit that is. And or if you have an exchanger whose 180-day period is closing before July 15th, it now gives them a little more time if they were affected by COVID. Um, the release was very different than anything we've ever seen. Typically, it's hyper-local to disaster areas, say Nashville, Tennessee, after um, you know tornadoes or something to that effect. And you'll see the IRS release a news bulletin that includes the counties that are affected. And it gives very clear direction on extension timeframes for both the 45 and 180. So where, where our professional trade organization is, is kind of reaching out to IRS and Congress now is just to ask for further clarity on that because it's it's very different and it doesn't actually extend to uh, both dates, uh, at least as far as we read it. And as a quick asterisk, when it comes to any IRS notice uh, extension, uh, we provide the data to the exchanger and, and really it's up to the exchanger to determine what their CPA if they qualify because it is a tax matter. So we encourage them to, and we can guide as much as possible, but really it comes down to them and the CPA to make the decision about whether or not they qualify. But we've had a, a host of exchangers benefit from this notice, giving them extra time to identify property, which um, 
you know, we're seeing the full gamut. We're seeing the full spectrum of some exchangers are getting very aggressive and just sort of going, man, this is a great time, you know, I'm, and they're, they're moving forward. And we're also seeing the other side of the spectrum where uh, potential exchangers are drawing back to be more conservative. So it's really, I, I, I wouldn't even say that there's one perspective on how to approach this, but that IRS notice was definitely helpful and uh, something that I encourage you know, anyone to go take a look at. Um, we're, we're in a point where I was having conversations today where, you know, folks are closing, say, on June 1st. It's really not going to benefit them because that 45 day is going to be at or after July 15th. So should the IRS provide further guidance, either through Q&A or through an additional notice, potentially we'll have further extensions. But as of right now, we've had no, no um, further information. Got it. But at least it gives people some time through this COVID crisis because I've, I've talked to a lot of people and some people have said that the market is in some ways at a standstill in certain areas where transactions just are not being you know, processed. Like I've talked to brokers and brokers have told me, yeah. hey, look, you know, you, this is the only deal we have in the fire right now. And yeah. uh, so I, I, I guess that this overall extension just gives people more time to transact. Which is Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I also add that I, I see that, that, that it has, has helped many clients uh, make a better decision because uh, the worst decision to make is to buy property that they don't, they don't want right. and that they will end up saying, I'm just going to cash out at the 45th calendar day. And that's what we'll tell them and say, here are your options. And maybe the best option is simply to cash out, don't identify replacement property, don't take the July 15th date, just go ahead and cash out and you're going to pay tax on that. But at least you're not being forced in something you don't want to be and you've had the opportunity to or take or extend your 45th calendar day to the july 15th uh to if you want to continue and if you think that's going to give you a good time another example that i had recently is i had a a client in israel who's buying property in italy well she couldn't get into italy to see replacement property so at this point she has more time for 108th calendar day now has gone from say June 1st now to July 15th so that gives her some additional time to get into Italy so she can see replace the property candidates. This is even affecting international investors pretty much at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, it's crazy. Clearly. So if our listeners want to learn more about you, uh, learn more about uh, Atlas 10 Zero Exchange, what is the best way for them to get in contact with you? Sure. Probably our website, uh, www.atlas1031.com. We have plenty of ways to connect with us through free consultations. Our contact information, you know, is all there, very present, very clear. And, you know, Andy and I are are fortunate to enjoy what we do and to focus on 1031 exchanges. And so we enjoy having these conversations, even if they're speculative. So, I mean, we have a lot of conversations with people who just find out about 1031 and want to talk out their scenario, uh, talk through it. And we enjoy doing that. And um, any listeners that you may have that are kind of in that camp are welcome to contact us and we'd be more than happy to, to talk to them. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming to the show. We're looking forward to putting this out there. Have you heard of the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 11th through the 13th? It's a three-day information-packed virtual event for multifamily investors with over 1,000 attendees and over 50 speakers. You will hear from experts on finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. I have also been invited back to present on tax strategies for multifamily investors. To grab your tickets, head on over to www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to get $100 off. Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, this is an event that you won't want to miss. Again, join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit by visiting www.apartmentevent.com today and use promo code THOMAS for $100 off your tickets. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.